Now remain standing for our gospel lesson and sermon text from the end of Matthew 2. Pay close attention because this is the gospel of God. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Thus far the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your Word. And as we meditate on it today and consider the truths of the Gospel, help us to treasure them in our hearts, to believe them, and to go out from here willing to do them. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Please be seated. Matthew 1 and 2 are a crash course on how to read the Bible. More specifically, they're a crash course on how to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament storyline. All of Israel's history and laws and institutions have been, have been fulfilled in the birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the culmination of the Old Testament. And Matthew forces us to see this in ways that challenge our modern minds and our modern ways of reading the Bible. Some people talk about finding Jesus in the Old Testament. They say that when you read the Old Testament, you need to look for Christ. Well, that's okay as far as it goes. But Matthew is doing something different. He's not finding Jesus in the Old Testament. He's finding the Old Testament in Jesus. Matthew is reading the whole story of Israel in the Old Testament and noticing, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how the story of Christ is patterned after the story of Israel. The first pattern Matthew notices in the life of Christ, is the out-of-Egypt pattern in verse 15 of chapter 2. And you can open your Bibles to Matthew 2. Matthew 2.15 says that Jesus and His family stayed in Egypt until the death of Herod, it says. Why? That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. And here we see, we saw last week in depth, that Jesus' trip to Egypt and back fulfilled Hosea 11 verse 1, 
which says out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, the son in Hosea 11 is Israel. It's looking back to the Exodus. The son in Matthew 2 is Jesus. What Matthew's saying here is that Jesus is the true Israel, the new and improved Israel, as it were, the true son. Israel was the son in Exodus 3 and 4. Jesus is the son now. So for more on that, you can go back and listen to last week's sermon. The second pattern fulfillment we saw is in verses 17 and 18. Verse 16 describes Herod's massacre of the little boys in Bethlehem. And in verses 17 and 18, Matthew says that the weeping of the Bethlehem mothers is a fulfillment of Rachel's weeping. Verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, a voice was heard in Ramah, which is where Rachel was, close to where Rachel was buried. Lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children from the grave, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So in this prophecy, Jeremiah depicts the deceased Rachel crying inconsolably from her tomb. She's weeping for her children, the Israelites, who are being taken into exile, into Babylonian captivity. And in Jeremiah's prophecy, Rachel's figurative tears mark the beginning of exile. So why does Matthew link Rachel's tears with the tears of these grieving mothers in Bethlehem. He does it to tell us that the weeping of Rachel and the weeping of the Bethlehem mothers are both the weeping of exile. There's no question that Rachel's weeping in the Jeremiah quote is the weeping of exile, but Matthew also wants us to see the weeping of these Bethlehem mothers as the weeping of exile. The end of exile is the point here. And so the point is that while Rachel's tears marked the beginning of exile, the tears in Bethlehem marked the end of exile because they mark the coming of the Lord's Christ, Jesus. Now with the coming of God into the world, the exile of God's people is finally coming to an end. We should, ex- we should expect to start seeing the promises of the Old Testament, the prophets coming to fruition because exile is over. Now, of course, the exile that Matthew has in mind, we need to read this theologically, the, Matthew, the, the exile Matthew has in mind is not the Babylonian captivity per se. No, he's thinking of a much greater problem, a much worse exile. Back in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, Mankind was exiled from the presence of God, taken captive to sin and death and Satan. Jesus had to come and save His people from our willful self-exile into spiritual darkness. That's the real exile in the Old Testament. So the tears of Bethlehem mark the end of the tears of exile. The Savior of mankind has come. The trail of tears reached its final destination at the birth of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now this brings us to Matthew's final fulfillment formula at the end of chapter 2. And 
I, I left you with a cliffhanger for those of you who were here last week. We'll try to dig into it this week. Chapter 2, verse 23, the last verse of Matthew 2 says, And he, Joseph, came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he, the Christ, shall be called a Nazarene. Now the difficulty with verse 23 is that Matthew puts this prophecy into the mouths of, of multiple Old Testament prophets. And yet there's no prophecy anywhere in the Bible that says this verbatim. Neither Nazareth nor Nazarene is ever mentioned in the Old Testament. So what's going on? What's Matthew doing here? Well, let's start with what's right in front of us on the surface. If you look carefully at verse 23 and how it's worded, you'll notice two differences from the other fulfillment formulas in Matthew, in chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 in particular. The first difference is that verse 23 refers to multiple prophets. And all the other fulfillment formulas, every single one, Matthew refers to one prophet. For example, look up, the previous one in verse 17. It says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. Singular. In verse 23, Matthew breaks from this pattern and says, Which was spoken by the prophets. Plural. This is the first indication that Matthew is not claiming to quote directly from a particular prophet. He's He's pointing to a prophetic theme, a broad prophetic theme, rather than a specific prophecy. The fact that Jesus was raised in Nazareth and was called a Nazarene, as verse 23 says both of those things, fulfills a broad prophetic theme that shows up in multiple prophetic passages. Now this interpretation is confirmed not just by the uniqueness of this plural prophets, but it's confirmed by the second difference in verse 23. The second difference is that Matthew doesn't use the word saying or written. In all the other fulfillment formulas, Matthew says that the prophet wrote or said something. Usually he introduces the quote with the word saying. And then he quotes what the prophet said or wrote for example again look up at verse 17 Matthew says then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying if you look down at the next one in Matthew 3 verse 3 you'll see the same formula for that uh, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah saying and then Matthew 4 14 that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying But in Matthew 2.23, the gospel writer breaks from this pattern. He doesn't use the word saying to introduce the prophecy, nor does he say that this prophecy was written by a prophet. Most, if not all, commentators are in agreement that in our English translations, we shouldn't put quotation marks around, he shall be called a Nazarene. Those quotation marks, Greek didn't have quotation marks. It had ways of 
introducing direct quotes, but that's an interpretation to put quotation marks around it. But we shouldn't put quotes around this phrase, this sentence, because this time, unlike the other times, Matthew isn't quoting any one prophet, what he wrote or what he said. Instead, he's summarizing an Old Testament theme and he's putting it into the collective mouth of the Old Testament prophets. Since Matthew isn't quoting anything or anyone directly, the best way then to translate the end of verse 23 is to take away the quotation marks. So verse 23 should read this way, And he, Joseph, came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, that he shall be called a Nazarene. So no quotation marks are called for. So rather than quoting a single prophet, Matthew is summarizing a major theme of the prophets. He's consolidating the message of multiple prophets into one succinct statement. Now, you might say it's also one cryptic statement. And that brings us to the crux of the matter. How does the fact that Jesus grew up in Nazareth fulfill a major Old Testament theme? Which prophetic theme does Jesus fulfill by virtue of being called a Nazarene? Matthew's actually linking Jesus to two Old Testament ideas. There are two Old Testament threads, or we'll call them sub-themes, that come together in verse 23 in support of one overarching theme. Now, before we explore the two sub-themes, we need to get a vision of the overarching theme. The overarching theme in verse 23 is the suffering, despised, and rejected Messiah. Verse 23 is teaching us that the Messiah will be one who suffers rejection and contempt. That's the big idea. The overarching theme. Can't you see it? Now, we can see this actually right on the surface of the text, even before we explore the two sub-themes that will bring this out and make it clear. The title Nazarene is a title of contempt in the New Testament. Do you remember how Nathaniel responds to Philip in John 1? When Philip tells Nathaniel that the Messiah is from Nazareth, John 1, Philip, you know, he comes running to Nathaniel and he says, we, we found the Messiah. He's here. The one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. It's Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And Nathaniel responds, are you kidding me? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's his first response. To this good news. Nazareth was a despised backwater town in northern Israel. No one of any stature or importance ever came from there. It's where the, the Rubes lived. Nazareth was a town in the region of Galilee, and that was part of the problem. Everyone knew that the Messiah couldn't come from anywhere in Galilee. Later in John's Gospel, in chapter 7, you remember the chief priests and the Pharisees rebuke Nicodemus 
because Nicodemus is wanting to give a fair hearing to Jesus in the message. And they ask Nicodemus mockingly, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. In Acts 24.5, Paul is accused of being, quote, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That was meant to be derogatory. It's supposed to hurt. Calling Paul a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes was a condescending comment that was supposed to sting. The fact that Jesus was a Nazarene of Galilee was proof to first century Jews that Jesus was anything but the Messiah. To say that Jesus was a Nazarene, then, is just another way of saying that he was despised and rejected. That's where Matthew's going with this. The Psalms and the prophets predicted that the Messiah would be despised and mocked. He would be rejected and scorned. For example, Psalm 22, which Jesus prayed from the cross, says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. In Isaiah 49.7, the Lord says that His Holy One, Israel's Redeemer, which is the Messiah, will be deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, by His nation, His people. Well, the most famous passage, of course, about the Messiah's humiliation is Isaiah 53. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So you see this theme of grief and sorrow, rejection. The title Nazarene was a badge of inferiority for Jesus in fulfillment of these prophecies and and others. Of course, the final fulfillment of these prophecies is the cross. That's the climactic fulfillment of all this. The cross is where the Messiah was despised and rejected in the fullest and final sense. But the fact that He was raised in Nazareth means that His rejection and humiliation began before the cross. He was despised simply by virtue of being from Nazareth. And his rejection as a Nazarene culminated in his humiliation, his humiliating rejection on the cross. So that's the overarching Old Testament theme in verse 23. To be called a Nazarene is to be despised, and the Old Testament says that the Messiah would be despised and he would suffer. Now, let's put some meat on the bones of this explanation by looking at the two sub-themes. And this, this gets at the more, the, the more specifically at the prophecies that, that Matthew has in mind. For the first one, I want you to turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11 is one of, you know, it's one of those Old Testament prophecies that we read most years during Advent or Christmas because it so clearly points to the new covenant Messiah, His reign, 
is Messiah's ship. So in Isaiah 11, look at verse 1. Isaiah 11, 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem or stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its of his roots. So who's this branch that will sprout up from Jesse's tree stump? It's the Messiah. It's Jesus. And here's why this is important. The Hebrew word for branch is pronounced nazer. So Isaiah says, There shall come forth a rod from the stump of Jesse, a branch, a nazer, shall grow out of his roots. It's not hard to see that Matthew's use of Nazarene, which in Greek is pronounced Nazorios, is a play on the Hebrew word Nazar in Isaiah 11. So Isaiah says that the Messiah will be a branch, a Nazar from Jesse's stump. And Matthew 2.23 says that Jesus of Nazareth is that branch, that Nazar. Now, this fits because the branch in Isaiah 11.1 1, sprouts from a humiliated tree. A humiliated stump. A stump, after all, is a tree that's been chopped down. So Isaiah is saying that the Messiah will spring up from the lowly, despised, chopped down tree of David's father, Jesse. Future son of David, the future Messiah would be a Nazar, a branch that would grow out of Jesse's family tree, a tree that had been cut down to nothing but a lowly stump. This means that the Messiah would be a branch of small and despised beginnings. Sort of like somebody raised, reared in Nazareth. The depiction of the Messiah in eleven in Isaiah eleven one is not a picture of glory. It's a picture of humility. Small beginnings. In essence, Matthew is saying, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be a despised Nazar, a despised branch from the humiliated stump of Jesse. And Jesus fulfilled this prophecy by being a, des- a despised Nazarios, a despised Nazarene from the humble town of Nazareth. Nazareth. Here's how uh, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson summarizes this point. Which, by the way, is I know that this seems like a stretch, right? Because the way modern people read ancient literature, uh, we, we tend to read it like we read modern literature or newspapers. But just, just so you know, this is actually a very common vanilla interpretation that I'm giving you. It's historic and, and the consensus. And here, and I'll quote one New Testament scholar who's right up the middle uh, just to prove it. This is D.A. Carson. He says, Jesus is King Messiah, but he was a branch from a royal line that was hacked down to a stump, and he was reared in surroundings guaranteed to win him scorn. Jesus the Messiah, Matthew is telling us, did not introduce his kingdom with outward show or present himself with the pomp of an earthly monarch. In accord with Isaiah's prophecy, he came as a despised servant of the Lord. That servant of the Lord 
theme runs through Isaiah as well. So at every turn, Matthew is pointing us straight to the shameful cross of the Messiah. The cross is where the humiliation of Jesus reached its climax. The cross is where Jesus was ultimately despised. And the good news, as Hebrews 12.2 puts it, is that Jesus endured the cross and scorned its shame and then sat down at the right hand of God's throne. And He did this to free you and me from exile. We were exiled out of God's presence in Genesis 3 as the previous prophetic fulfillment passage formula reminds us of. But through the Messiah's cross, God has delivered us from exile. And He has reconciled us to Himself. Now you can begin to see how Matthew 1 and 2 really cover the the whole story, the whole gospel story taking us all the way up to the shameful cross whose shame Christ scorned. You see, by connecting Jesus to the branch in Isaiah 11.1, Matthew 2.23 proclaims the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of the Lord's Christ, who came in humility and who came precisely for the purpose of being humiliated and despised on the cross for your sins and mine. So that's the first sub-theme in Matthew 2.23. It's the theme of the despised branch, the despised Nazare from Isaiah 11. But there's a second Old Testament theme that Matthew alludes to. And this second sub-theme also involves a word play. So now that you're warmed up, Your interpretive juices are flowing. I want you to think, try to think of an Old Testament word that sounds a lot like Nazarene. And this this works in English almost as well as it does in the original language. So what's the word in the Old Testament that sounds like Nazarene? I'll give you a hint. Samson was one of these, as was John the Baptist. If you know it, say it out loud, just for fun. Nazarite, yeah, that's right. Nazarene reminds us of the Old Testament Nazarite institution and vow. In fact, the Greek word for Nazarene and the Greek word for Nazarite are almost identical. There's only one vow that's different between these two words. The Greek word for Nazarite is Nazirios. And the Greek word for Nazarene is Nazorios. So in English, it's an I and an O are the only difference there. One letter difference. But the real question is, in what sense was Jesus a Nazarite? How did he fulfill the Nazarite institution? Well, to begin to answer that question, let's read about the famous Nazarite in the book of Judges. So turn with me again in your Bibles. If you're, if you're still in Isaiah, just go back. Uh, several books, to Judges chapter 13. And as you turn to Judges 13, I'll remind you that the book of Judges is a prophetic book. Uh, in, in our English, the way we divide our English Bibles up, Judges falls in with the historical books because it is historical. But in the Hebrew Bible, historically, 
the prophetical books are divided up into former prophets and latter prophets. And the book of Judges is one of the former prophets. So when Matthew 2.23 says that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, we should remember that the book of Judges is one of the prophets. And that maybe Matthew had this passage, this story in mind. So we're going to read Judges 13.1-7. And this, this story of Samson's birth uh, as, you, as you read it, as you hear me or follow with me, think about how the story of Christ is patterned after this story in some ways and consider how the Samson story was fulfilled in the Christ story. Judges 13, verse 1. Again, the children of Israel did evil in sight of the Lord. and The Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, the, the Lord delivered them into exile into Philistine captivity because of their sin. Verse 2, Now there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. Notice how this barren woman foreshadows the virgin Mary and how her son Samson foreshadows Christ, our Deliverer, our Savior. Verse 3, And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now therefore, please be careful. I lost my place. Be be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. Verse 5, For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son and no razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistine. Philistines. So the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome, but I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. Verse 7, And he said to me, Behold, you shall, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. The word Nazarite means separation. Nazarites were separated for a particular task. Most of the time the task involved waging holy war. The Nazarite was consecrated. He was made holy for the purpose of prosecuting holy war. The Nazarite's uncut hair points to his special consecration to the Lord. The the Nazarite abstained from alcohol during his vow because drinking alcohol symbolizes resting from one's labors. The Nazarite was forbidden to drink wine or beer until the task was complete, until the holy war was won. The life and ministry and death of Jesus fulfilled the Nazarite institution. As a true Nazarite, as the true separated one, as the true holy warrior, Christ took up the task of waging holy war against God's enemy on behalf of God's people. As the true Nazarite, Jesus denied himself of the glory and the rest and the joy that he had with the Father from eternity. He gave all of that up to become a suffering servant, the suffering servant of the Lord 
in Isaiah. Jesus Christ emptied Himself of His eternal glory to become a Nazarene, a despised citizen of Nazareth. This kind of self-denial is the stuff of Nazarite warriors. Jesus became the true Nazarite to wage holy war against Satan. As both a Nazarene and a Nazarite, our Lord was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As both a Nazarene and a Nazarite, He endured the cross and scorned its shame for the joy set before Him. Now, some of you may be noticing a potential problem with this interpretation. Nazarites were not supposed to drink alcohol, and yet the Gospels portray Jesus drinking alcohol on more than one occasion. He definitely drank wine the Last Supper. And Matthew eleven nineteen says that Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because he ate and drank alcohol with the people. So if Jesus was known to drink wine, how can we say that he was the truest and the greatest Nazarite warrior. In what sense did he fulfill the Nazarite institution and the Nazarite vow? There are two answers to this question. First, even though Jesus drank alcohol throughout his life, he was still a spiritual Nazarite his entire life. His constant spiritual warfare against the devil fulfilled the spiritual and theological significance of the Nazarite vow. He brought it to its end, to its goal, to its culmination, truly, because He fulfilled the spiritual and theological significance of it. Jesus was wholly consecrated to God as a holy warrior. He prosecuted holy war against Satan His whole life. He's the true Nazarite in that sense. Second, though, it appears that Jesus did take a literal Nazarite vow. At the end of his life, the end of his earthly ministry, at the Last Supper, you remember what he says? He told his disciples, I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine, that's wine, until the kingdom of God comes. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The established kingdom. That's a Nazarite vow. Jesus took this vow right before He entered the most intense battle of His holy war. And He kept this vow until He won the victory. When He was offered wine mixed with gall at the beginning of His crucifixion before He went to the cross on the hill, He refused to drink it because He was a Nazarite. He was a holy warrior in the middle of holy warfare. He didn't drink from the fruit of the vine until after He had established God's kingdom on the cross in His blood. Until the crucifixion was over. See, he, he rejected the wine. He turned down the wine at the beginning of the crucifixion. He didn't drink it until the end. Until he'd established God's kingdom in his blood. Until he had finished 
everything, all things that he came to do. John 19, uh, John, uh, 19, 28-30 describes the last minute or so of Christ's life, his crucifixion. John 19, 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop branch, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It makes sense to see all of this from the perspective of, of a Nazarite vow, the vow of a holy warrior who's consecrating himself for holy war, the greatest battle in the holy war. The cross was the culminating battle in the war against Satan. But before Jesus fought this final battle, he took his Nazarite vow to abstain from the fruit of the vine. And he was faithful to his vow until... He was victorious until it was finished. He refused to drink the offered wine that would have lessened the pain of the cross. He didn't drink wine again until he knew at the end of his crucifixion that, as John puts it, all things had been finished and the kingdom of God had come. Only then, John says, did Jesus accept a drink of wine and it was to fulfill the Scripture right before He gave up His spirit. And now, of course, Jesus enjoys the fruit of the vine with his disciples in the eternal kingdom, just as he said he would. The Nazarite vow is over. The battle is won. All of this is packed into one verse. Verse 23. And all of this is what Jesus did for you. He became the despised branch from the hacked down stump of Jesse to save you from sin. He gave up his life while waging holy warfare on your behalf as a Nazarite. He denied himself of his former glory and he took up his cross and endured its shame so that you could be saved. What is your response to this? What is your response to the gospel? How will you respond this week to the great salvation that Jesus has won for you? That your warrior has won for you on the cross? Will you deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow Him and fight in the war against evil? Will you become a spiritual Nazarite and fight against the enemy? God God is calling you, all of us, all believers, to wage holy warfare. He's calling you to fight like a Nazarite. He's calling you to separate yourself from the world and become a holy warrior for Christ and His kingdom. He's calling you to deny yourself of comforts and fleshly appetites for the sake of the kingdom of God. He's calling you to put yourself in positions 
where you may suffer and be despised and scorn where it might hurt. He's calling you to make yourself lowly and to fight tooth and nail against the enemy that Jesus has already definitively defeated for us. All things are now finished, John says. And Jesus knew. Jesus won the victory on the cross. He endured it and scorned its shame courageously and triumphantly. You, you've been forgiven of sin's wages. Now, go fight sin like a warrior. Let's pray. We thank You, Father, for the Gospel of Jesus Christ, for revealing it to us, and for opening our hearts to believe in it. Make us ready and willing to follow Jesus by taking up our cross, by denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Him in suffering and being despised. Help us through the power of Your Spirit and in the name, the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.